This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is part of a long series about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 3. In the last few episodes, we've been talking about how fear of creeping communism in the United States in the mid-1900s encouraged libertarian Christians to tie their faith to patriotism as a reaction against things like the New Deal and labor unions, you know, the stuff other Christians saw as the godly thing to do. Which demonstrates that there are many competing ideas when it comes to Christianity, labor, and economics. Those Christian libertarians created an era of public faith in the United States. And thus was born the National Prayer Breakfast, the Ministry of Billy Graham, thousands of red granite monuments to the Ten Commandments, massive ad campaigns, and much more. It was an era of visible religion. Like everywhere you went, restaurants, bus stations, on the radio and TV, some of the highest grossing movies of the time were biblical epics. It was also a prosperous era, where the post-war boom in the United States sparked industrial growth like the world had never seen. This all may seem very quaint and tidy, but this moment in history has completely shaped our modern era. When people wear Make America Great Again hats, this is what they are referring to. When, depending on your worldview, America may have been great. Minus the racism, Jim Crow laws, proxy wars, McCarthyism, and wars we were actively engaged in, and the fear of nuclear winter. Many people in our country today see that public faith as slipping away, being disassembled little by little. According to some theologians, we are entering a post-Christian era. Some of us see that and react with fear. It's that fear that we're going to explore today. What do we mean when we talk about a post-Christian era and how should believers respond to it? Do we engage in politics or sit it out? Is it possible that some of the clearest words of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, might just be what we need to hear? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.
Usually, episodes of Truce involve a lot of music, sound effects, and reenactments. For this episode, I mostly want to play a conversation I had recently that speaks to this notion of a post-Christian America. I think you'll really enjoy it. Our guest today is Sky Jatani. I'm Sky Jatani. He used to be an editor at Christianity Today, which, full disclosure, is the podcast hosting service I use for this show, and I produce ads for that network. He's also a speaker, pastor, and author. And my latest book is called What If Jesus Was Serious? A Visual Guide to the Teachings of Jesus We'd Love to Ignore. It's a great book about the Sermon on the Mount. It's full of insight and little doodles that illustrate his points. I think I may have finally cracked what the American book market wants, which is two-page chapters and doodles. <laughs> so, <laughs> Frankly, it would make a great gift. He's also the host of the Holy Post podcast. Okay, let's get down to business. If you're reading Christian literature these days, you've probably heard the term post-Christian. Like, we're living in a post-Christian society. I asked Sky, what is meant by that term? I think when you go back in more recent history, a lot of people look to the post-World War II era, sort of the 1950s, even into the 1960s, as this time when America felt more Christian. There was a lot of symbolism of Christianity. I know you've been talking about the impact the Cold War has had on raising those symbols in our country. And I think a lot of people look back nostalgically to that era, the post-Cold War, the post-World War II sort of Cold War era, as a time when faith and Christianity dominated a lot of the public square. Well, and in your experience, do you think public faith is a good thing, a bad thing, or is it kind of in the middle? Oh, goodness. That's a good question. Um, I think elements of it can be very good, and I think elements of it may be very bad. And that's sort of, I guess I'm wishy-washy on that. It's okay. Uh, I, I am too. <laughs> I, 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 like, if you were to ask me as a minister, as a pastor, would I rather minister in a in a community that was nominally Christian or one that was very post Christian? I would choose the post Christian one every time, hmm. because because I think it's far easier to show the distinguishing characteristics of the gospel in an environment that is opposed to it than in one where people are essentially inoculated to the gospel because they think they already have it. Right. And so that's sort of the problem with a, um, a nominally Christian culture is people think they're Christians. They think they understand the gospel. They think they're following Christ because they may go to church occasionally or they were baptized at some point or they celebrate you know, Christmas or whatever. And that's sometimes, I think, a harder environment to really show the true nature and power of the gospel. Um, on the flip side, I do think it generally benefits a society to adhere to general Christian ethics about human dignity and the importance of fidelity and other qualities that are really good. I, some years ago, I talked to a, an economist who came from China and was sent to the United States to study what is it that makes the U.S. economy so strong. And this atheists from China ended up concluding that apart from just the economic systems we've employed here of capitalism, the underlying quality that made our economy so strong was Christianity. Hmm. And what he meant by that was the general ethics of morality, of honesty, of uh, rooting out corruption that led to a strong economic system. Leading this Chinese 
diplomat to convert to Christianity. Wow. So um, there are, and I'm not saying like become a Christian because it's good for the economy. I'm saying <laughs> there are, there are indirect consequences of things like morality and ethics that bring flourishing to a community that are good fringe benefits of being a Christian society. But, um, you know, the role and dignity of women, the uh, affirmation of the marginalized, the care for the poor, all those things are deeply rooted in Christian ethics that I wouldn't want to see just thrown overboard because we're a post-Christian nation. Uh-huh. And you also get in that temptation, if you call it a Christian nation, to say that everybody who lives in that country is then saved just by virtue of where they live. And that's... right. I've seen a little bit of that, but it's kind of nonsense. Um, I, I, I uh, went to a college uh, years ago that was really hostile towards Christians. And uh, I would be in math class and Christianity would come up. And I'm like, how did this come up? Uh, <laughs> how am I, you know? And uh, I, I found that I would much rather have people against me so I could be the exception to what they think a Christian is uh, than, to, than them to be lukewarm. Um, I, I, yeah, I had the same experience. I went to a secular university and found myself in environments like that very regularly. And I wasn't threatened by it. And I'm, in some ways, I kind of relished it. And it was hard when I went to seminary then and realized, okay, we all basically agree here. Yeah. And you know, it, it was a different sort of setting. So I, I would pick the post-Christian environment as a setting for ministry, which actually leads me to, to respect those people who are called to minister in culturally Christian environments, because it's really, really hard. Right. And, and I have utmost respect for them, but there are challenges there that are different. And by no means is it, is it easier. Yeah. Well, I, and it's interesting, interesting to me that you weren't threatened by that. Why, by being in an environment that was different than what you believed, uh, how, how did you get to that place and why, why weren't you threatened? Well, part of it is I grew up in a home where, not everyone shared the same beliefs. My father is an immigrant from India, came from the Hindu family background, although he never really bought into that Hinduism. My mother was a Christian. So I, I was constantly in a cross-cultural environment where people didn't agree about basic fundamental beliefs. Hmm. And I did, so I wasn't threatened by that. And the other side of it is my faith and the strength of my faith did not rely on other people affirming it. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I think part of it was just my background and the diversity of my upbringing and the reality that if even people I deeply care about and respected disagreed with me on these matters of faith, it didn't erode my confidence in my faith. It makes me think um, when we see the, this post-Christian era happening, it makes us feel like we're being persecuted. Um, and you, in chapter 10 of your, your book, you draw the line between persecution and loss of privilege. Uh, can you speak to that and, and say why that's important, why we, we need to draw that line? Yeah, uh, I, I would absolutely affirm that Christianity has lost its privilege status in the United States and in, in many other parts of the world as well. And that loss of privilege can, is a genuine loss, and people grieve it and, and fear it. But there's a difference between losing a privilege and facing genuine persecution. Mm. So, um, you know, Christian prayers may not be heard in the public school or square anymore, or a Christian monument may, may not have prominence in the public square. They're not putting up a, a Christmas tree uncontested in the town square anymore. And, and that might feel like, oh, wait a minute, a part of my background, a part of my heritage is no longer affirmed by the community around me. And that is a genuine loss and people can grieve it, but that's not persecution. Mm. And to 
to label it as persecution is, I think, to do a disservice to our sisters and brothers around the world who are facing genuine persecution for their faith. Yeah. And, and to demand that Christian beliefs or symbols or values be given a, an uncontested place of prominence in our society is, is not the right battle to be waging in a pluralistic society. So I don't want to minimize the grief and pain some people feel over that loss of privilege, but I wouldn't call it discrimination or persecution. Right. Yeah. And it feels even kind of hurtful sometimes to call it privilege because it feels like maybe I snatched it from somebody else. Um, but, you know, maybe that's not a healthy attitude either. <laughs> I think privilege is, um, is a way of saying disproportionate favor. And when you look at the percentage of people in the country today who are truly uh, faith-affirming Christians, not just nominally or culturally Christian, it's, it's not that big. And mm-hmm. so to expect those beliefs and values to be uncontested in the public square is a privileged position, which is disproportionate to the number of people who actually hold those beliefs. So that's what I mean by privilege. It isn't that, you know, if, if 80% of Americans were truly uh, theologically affirming, practicing Christians, it wouldn't be correct to call it a privileged position in the public square because 80% of the people hold that view. Yeah. But when it's you know much smaller than that, but punches above its weight class, that is a privilege. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that your book actually came out at a really good time when the country is struggling with uh, so much anger and hatred. Uh, to, and to speak on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is really important in this era where we just want to be angry all the time. How do, what does the Sermon on the Mount have to teach us about living in a world that is post-Christian? Like even I, I thought your your introduction speaks about you speak about a class that you were teaching where they just didn't think that they could take it seriously. Uh, what what is what does that say about what we need to be focusing on now in this post-Christian world? Yeah, well that that class was actually probably about fifteen years ago. And certainly some of the qualities we see today were in their more embryonic form then, but they were still present. And I I think what it spoke to, this class was about the Sermon on the Mount. And on the first day, we read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the chapters on the sermon. And I simply asked the class after we read it together, was Jesus serious? Do you think he actually expects us to live the way he describes it in the sermon? And of the 30 or 40 lifelong church-going evangelical Christians in that classroom, nobody said yes. Wow. Nobody thought this was to be taken seriously. And, and we could parse what, why that is, but I think the general, what it generally reveals is how much pragmatism has infiltrated a lot of American Christianity. Hmm. What I mean by that is many people have been formed to think that the Christian faith and scripture is primarily uh, a vehicle or a tool we use to make life better hmm. and to, to make families better, to make you know, our financial decisions better, to make our communities better. And it, it's pushed through a, a lens of pragmatism. But then when you read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says things like, love your enemies and, hmm. and don't cultivate anger and be generous to everyone who asks of you. Uh, forgive the people who've wronged you like that. The, I'll be the first to say those are supremely impractical commands, right? Those, 
those are not things that you would find on a list of uh, qualities that will help you get ahead, at, at least as we've defined getting ahead in the American dream. And so I think for a lot of these evangelical Christians who were raised in that pragmatism, therapeutic kind of Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount, they just have no room for these commands because they don't make practical sense. Right. And what that speaks to is that our core vision of life is flawed, mm. that we are trying to fit the teachings of Jesus and his apostles into a vision of the American dream, wow. rather than having that vision of life uprooted and replaced with a vision of life in God's kingdom in which the commands of Jesus actually make perfect sense. Right. So that's, that's the core problem. And I then fast forward 15 years to our present situation and you see what's going on in our culture, all the anger, as you talked about all the division. And we think the way to get ahead is through power. It's we have to dominate. We need to have control of Washington. We need to have control of our schools or whatever. And where are the teachings of Jesus that are going to justify us grabbing power and control and you don't find those in the Sermon on the Mount. So you got to do something with it. And that's where the, the theological gymnastics come into play and contortions where people twist and turn the Sermon on the Mount to make it something that never was in order to get it out of the way. Right. But that makes me think, uh, what would our churches look like if we were taking Jesus seriously in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, how do you think that would change how we're doing church? Like by church, do you, do you mean... Do you mean the 501c3 institution with the leadership and the budgets? and Or do you mean the community of Christians who, you know, gather together and support one another in their faith? And, and you know, those are two different things. Yeah, I'd say give me a little both. How about that? <laughs> um, well, let's start with the institution, the sort of 501c3 idea. Um, I think if we took the Sermon on the Mount seriously, those institutions would, uh, number one, probably be less focused on a Sunday morning performance mm. and more focused on how do we cultivate, uh, as Dallas Willard would say, how do we cultivate apprentices of Jesus? Mm. How do we help people actually to take him seriously, get a vision for life in his kingdom, and then equip them to follow him on that, on that course. And that probably includes gathering on Sunday mornings and hearing God's word and things like communion and singing but it probably looks like a lot of other things as well. Secondly, the institution, if it takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously, is probably going to have to figure out how do we um, dispense more of our resources to care for the people around us in this community rather than just caring for the people who show up in our doors. Hmm. Um, the poor, the homeless, the needy, uh, and truly communicate their value and dignity and worth, whether or not they share our beliefs. Hmm. So it's an outward posture rather than an inward circle the wagons, let's insulate ourselves and just care for our own. When it comes to the community, obviously there's some overlap there. Um, but as a, as a people, it would mean loving our enemies. I, th I mean, that's sort of the graduate level engagement with the Sermon on the Mount. It would mean who are the people around us that we find the most troubling and how do we actively communicate and display God's love for them, not hatred, judgment, uh, diminishment, but genuine love? And there have obviously been Christian communities throughout history that have done that and done that beautifully. But that's not currently why at least most of white Christianity, Protestant evangelicalism in the United States is known for. I think white evangelicalism, me being part of that, 
we kind of live in fear that Christianity is under attack, like all the time. Mm-hmm. And we jump from fear to fear. Uh, why do you think that is? And what can the Sermon on the Mount do to kind of help alleviate that? Yeah. Well, part of it is because fear is just a default posture of the human organism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, since the the rebellion of the man and the woman in the garden, they were afraid, right? We hid because we were afraid when we heard you walking through the garden. So fear has always been there. We're biologically hardwired for it. The amygdala, this little part of our brain is where we get that fight or flight survival response. We're just naturally fearful people. And so that base part of our lizard brain is also the easiest to activate. And Mm -hmm. frankly, there are a lot of voices out there, political leaders, religious leaders, cultural leaders who leverage fear in order to motivate us. Uh, I heard an interview recently with somebody who used to be a leader of the religious right, who has since kind of repented of his political engagement. He's a pastor. And he talked about how he had consultants flat out tell him, how are you going to make people more angry and afraid? Because that's the only effective way to raise money. Wow. I talked to uh, years ago after um, 2008, after Barack Obama won the election against John McCain, I was talking to a political advisor who had worked on John McCain's campaign. And sort of a friend of mine, and I, we caught up a few months after the election. And I said, hey, I'm sorry you're out of a job because your candidate lost. And he looked at me and he said, are you nuts? This is the best thing that could have ever happened for my career. Whoa. I said, what do you mean? The other, Barack Obama won. You were working for John McCain. And he said, no, 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 I'm a fundraiser. The easiest way for me to raise money is for Barack Obama to be in the White House because I can frighten people into what he's going to do. Wow. So we utilize fear because it's the easiest way to motivate people. Even Madison Avenue advertising does this all the time in commercials we see in advertisements. It's you're not pretty enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not secure enough. You're not safe enough. You're not healthy enough. And if you buy our product, you'll be safe. And that is really, really effective. So we live in an environment that is targeting us all the time to be more and more and more afraid. And when that's coming, especially when it's coming from people who identify as a Christian leader, they are not leading us by the, by the spirit of Christ if they're utilizing fear, right? Because we've not been given a spirit of fear, as the apostle says, but one of freedom and power. So those Christian leaders who are trying to awaken more and more fears in us to motivate us are actually leading us by the spirit of Antichrist. Hmm. And it's completely antithetical to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So I think that's why we're so afraid. It's not only because we're biologically wired for it, but there are so many voices and forces in our culture and within the church that are feeding the fires of those fears. Right. And you touch on this in your book as well, uh, the idea that of scarcity. Uh, that we, we've come to kind of get focused on scarcity instead of understanding that Jesus is going to provide. Um, can, can you yeah. talk, talk about that provision a little bit? Sure. Uh, I mean, this dates back into the Old Testament. One of the things that you see throughout the Old Testament is that when God's present with his people, there's always an abundance. And perhaps most vividly, this is seen in the Exodus story, when the Israelites have left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness the Lord provides manna from heaven you know, every day to feed them quail and fresh water out of rocks. Like his presence brings abundance. And then you get into the prophets of the Old Testament and they start for, foreseeing the day when God's kingdom will come and, and this Messiah will, will bring God's presence back to his people. And they foretell the signs of this coming kingdom with abundance again. You know, there will be plenty for all. Jesus then arrives on the scene in the Gospels and many of his miracles are 
symbols of abundance from the wine at the wedding at Cana to the feeding of the multitudes. There's always enough, which is his way of saying, hey, the kingdom is here. God's present among you again. You don't have to be afraid. And you see it in the early church. And it wasn't always a um, kind of metaphysical miracle. Sometimes it was the miracle of generosity that gave enough where the early Christians sold what they had and brought and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was redistributed so that the poor had enough and everyone was well fed and, and there was, you know, fairness among the people of God. That's the same miracle that dates all the way back to the Exodus story. So in the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus saying to his people, don't be afraid, don't worry. You don't have to worry about having enough food or enough clothing. Your heavenly father knows you need them. He will provide it. And just look at the biblical history. He has shown his faithfulness. But if we don't believe that, if we don't have a vision of abundance, and instead we have the the worldly empire vision of scarcity, well, then we're not going to be generous people. We're not going to give to the ones who ask of us. We're going to constantly be scraping to get more and more. We're going to be susceptible to greed and idolatry. And that's what you see in so much of the world today, and including in the church. We're afraid that there won't be enough, which betrays our identity as people called into God's kingdom. And we are revealing we're actually people still living in the empires of the world. Right. Yeah. I, I saw a study uh, right about when President Trump came out. I made an episode about uh, the study uh, that showed that most white evangelicals actually voted for him because of the economy and not because right. of abortion or any of those other issues. Um, yeah, that was a LifeWay study that showed that. Yeah. Um, I think it was the economy and immigration were the two top issues that motivated evangelical voters. Right. Which kind of gives the idea that we were worried about the economy crashing because of immigration, <laughs> that God God wouldn't have enough provision to take care of the foreigner. And the Bible takes right. takes a, goes through a lot of pains to talk about taking care of foreigners. Yeah, and I think that that speaks again to the captivity of our imaginations by the narratives of our culture rather than the narrative of scripture. Yeah. And is, whoever occupies that part of our brain, whatever story occupies that part of our brain, is going to define the way we act. And I think that's exactly why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. He's going through a list of people who the world has traditionally said are rejected or cursed, and he flips the story. And he says, no, 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 these people are actually blessed in my kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he's painting a vision of a different kind of world. And that is what he hangs in the rest of the sermon's commands upon. If, if you believe that you're going to be marginalized and hated and hungry and despised, then yeah, you're not going to be generous and you're not going to be able to live without worry. But if you believe that you're blessed, that God is with you, that he is with all these people that have traditionally been rejected, then you don't have to be afraid anymore. But it's that vision that we lack, which is why we can't conceive of how these commands in the sermon could possibly make sense. We'll be back with more after these messages. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, 
Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Welcome back. During my conversation with Sky Jitani, I referenced chapter 13 of his book. In that chapter, he addresses the desire many Christians have to say that we should just stay out of politics. It's an ugly time right now. Let's just focus on evangelism. By doing so, he contends that we're trying to separate justice and evangelism, when really, we need both. Here again is Sky Jatani. Yeah, I think this is a sort of a problem of English translation for a lot of us. Yeah. In, in Hebrew especially, the word for uh, justice is also the word that we often translate as righteousness, and it simply means to exist in right relationship. And the task of evangelism, which most conservative Christians would wholeheartedly endorse, the task of evangelism is is to invite people back into a right relationship with their creator, to explain how sin has separated us, how Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin through his mercy and grace. You can be reconciled to God and live again in a righteous, right relationship with your heavenly father. And that's all great. Well, justice is simply the call to then live in right relationship with the world around you, with the people around you. And throughout the Bible, including in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never separates this right relationship with God from right relationship with one another. Hmm. In fact, he says, if you're going to the altar to worship God and there realize that your brother has something against you, first go be reconciled to your brother, then come and worship God. And later on, when he talks after describing the Lord's Prayer, talks about forgiveness, he says, if you don't forgive your brother who's wronged you, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. Mm. And these are themes that then the apostles pick up in their letters and in the epistles. And Paul talks about how uh, we have been reconciled to one another through the cross and then together as one new person reconciled to God, where he puts the horizontal reconciliation first and then the vertical with God. So in this is an echo all the way back of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 58 is a great example, where the Lord rejects the worship of Israel because they're not treating one another fairly. Mm. So what we've tended to do in modern uh, sort of American Christianity is separate these two dimensions. And we believe we can have a right relationship with God without having to incorporate a right relationship with the people around us. And we've separated evangelism from justice. Hmm. That is just a complete violation of both the Old and New Testament teachings and of Jesus himself. So my argument is just, hey, it's about righteousness. It's about right relationships. And it's a unified whole. And if you want a right relationship with God, you also must be seeking right relationships with one another. And justice is just the horizontal dimension of that right righteousness. And uh, we can look at that on a personal level in our relationships. We can also look at it on a social level. And how are we constructing systems and uh, laws and policies which does right by the poor, the marginalized, the immigrant, um, anybody in our society who we know is made in God's image and worthy of dignity and respect, but isn't receiving it. We should be pursuing those things as part of the outflowing of our relationship with God. Right. Well, and you mentioned like laws and policies and things. Um, sometimes the temptation for us is then to like say, I'm just going to 
stay out of politics and I'm just going to, you know, read my Bible and try to live the best I can for the Lord. Uh, through the Holy Post, you guys talk about that sort of tightrope uh, where we have to engage in politics, but also not make it our God um, and not try to, you know, use that as a, a mode of oppression on people. Uh, what is that line for you? How do you, how do you see that line being? <laughs> Oh, goodness. That's a good question. Uh, you know, the text I tend to go to is Romans 13, which mm-hmm. is often abused, frankly. This is where Paul talks about <laughs> submitting submitting to the ruling authorities yes. because, you know, God has put them there and they have the sword for a reason and all that. Well, obviously, in, in Paul's time, he lived in, in an empire under the authority of Caesar and, you know, the Roman forces and things. The question we need to be asking as 21st century Americans is who who is the ruling authority in our day, in our form of government? According to the Constitution, it's we the people. Yeah, We the citizens of this country have been given, if you want to use Paul's argument, by God, the authority to rule in a Republican democracy which means part of my responsibility as a citizen is to exercise my influence both as as a voter and as a vocal citizen to advocate for just laws and policies that seek the flourishing of my neighbor, hmm. not just myself. So I am ultimately held accountable by God as a ruler. And therefore I should be using my freedom of speech and my freedom of assembly and my uh, vocation and my role as a citizen and as a voter to do what I can to advocate for things that reflect the kingdom of God. Now, that's not to say those won't be uncontested. We They will be in a pluralistic society. But nonetheless, that's part of my responsibility and calling as a Christian in this place, in this time. And we need to take that seriously. And to just say, nope, I'm not going to get involved in any way, and I'm going to retreat into my prayer closet and just read my Bible. I think is to be unfaithful to a serious vocation that we have received because of the time and place in which we live. Okay, so that's that's actually very interesting. I'd never thought about myself being a ruler because it's so much easier under like the Roman Empire to be like, okay, Caesar, that's the guy I have to obey. Uh, it's much right. harder when it's me and millions of other people. <laughs> it is. It is. Yes, and and I'm not saying that elected authorities shouldn't be obeyed or right. police shouldn't be obeyed, things like that. But ultimately, those elected authorities are accountable to us. Mm. And we sometimes, I think, have forgotten that. And we do have a role to play, not just when we enter the voting booth every couple of years, but even in you know lobbying our representatives, calling them, uh, organizing when there are things that violate the conscience of God's people or clear commands of his law. So, I mean, could you imagine what would have happened if every Christian in the 19th century just said, well, this slavery thing's none of our business. We're just going to keep our nose right. in our Bible. Right? Yeah. That would have been ridiculous. And and yet, we need to constantly uh, be self-aware enough to realize when our public advocacy is becoming um, a self-righteous, prideful kind of engagement rather than truly motivated by love for the other rather than just protection of the self. Yeah, well, I guess one of the big questions of this season that I've been exploring has been when when does our political affiliation hurt our witness? 
it's, it's not an easy thing to think of because we do, of course, have to be involved politically and it's good for us to vote. It's good for the country, but it can become such a part of our identity that it can be tied to our witness yeah. and impact how people see Jesus just on an evangelism level. I guess maybe that's where we need the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yeah, again, it, it, it gets back to that idea of which narrative is really filling our imagination. Yeah. Is it, the, is it the vision given to us from Scripture, from the Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom of God, or is it the one we've received from the Democratic or Republican Party? Mm. And I think there can be very faithful Christians engaged in politics and, and even deeply engaged in either political party, but at some point you're going to have a conflict because neither one of those parties and the narratives that they are advocating conforms to the one we receive from Jesus. And if you're not feeling that tension, that conflict, something's wrong. You've probably capitulated too far to the narrative of the political party rather than advocate for the narrative of Jesus within that political party. Thanks again to Sky Jitani for his insight in this episode. His book is What If Jesus Was Serious? from Moody Publishers. Sky is also one of the hosts of the excellent podcast The Holy Post, which you can get just about anywhere you get your pods. One of the other people on that show is Phil Vischer, creator of the popular VeggieTales series. You can find my interview with Phil from about a year ago at trucepodcast.com. While you're there, you can learn how to support this show. Truce is listener-supported. I'd love to be able to do this full-time, but I need your help to do it. And if you become a monthly patron, you'll get access to special bonus features, including some audio with Sky that I couldn't fit into this episode. In it, Sky walks me through the process of producing an episode of The Holy Post. If you're a fan of that show, you'll almost certainly enjoy this bonus clip. Follow the show on social media at at Truce Podcast. Please rate and review the show on your podcasting app. And God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.